Hi, I'm Evan from Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm Nicole from Toronto. I'm Jake from Chattanooga. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. One of my guests this week is the filmmaker and actor Mark Duplass. A lot of times the climaxes of documentaries happen in a black and white title card, and they don't have the footage or through a side angle because they've been kicked out um, and you're watching it through the glass from across the street with subtitles. That's just inherently dramatic to me. I'm trying to bring that into narrative cinema as much as I can. It's Bullseye. This week, Mark Duplass is involved in literally half a dozen things coming out right now, but he isn't worried about spreading himself too thin. I would much rather make a whole bunch of, at least by my uh, standards, A-minuses than only one A-plus. And I talked to the writer and comic Scott Ackerman about his career, from sketch comedy on the cult classic Mr. Show to scripts for Doom film projects to now hosting a new surreal TV talk show called Comedy Bang Bang. Plus, David Reese gets serious about the art, yes, the art of pencil sharpening. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on the show, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to recommend something that's worth your time. Uh, This week, we're joined by Tasha Robinson and Keith Phipps from the AV Club. Hey, Keith and Tasha. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing terrific. That's fantastic. Um, These are are all-timers this week. And Tasha, you picked a a novel that certainly touched me when uh, I was a kid, uh, Richard Adams' Watership Down. Um, was it something that you read as a as a child? It was something I came to uh, as an early teenager, which uh, it's actually a book that, you know, it, it's pitched as a children's novel. It's pitched as a fantasy novel. But it actually kind of surpasses both of those genres as we know them today. It's probably my most reread novel. Tell me a little bit about the book for folks who don't remember it from childhood or, or haven't uh, haven't read it. And What's so powerful about it? Well, it's essentially an epic fantasy novel, except that all the characters are rabbits. It's actually been compared to the Odyssey in that it's sort of an an epic journey with a lot of steps and a lot of danger. But really what makes it so rich is the characterization. These are just beautifully, beautifully drawn characters and an epically drawn world. It's a fascinating book. For me, I think I get criticitis from time to time, and I value, I really, really highly value anything that I read or watch or listen to that's unlike anything I've ever read or watched or listened to before. And Watership Down just utterly qualifies for that. Keith Phipps, let's talk about Duck, You Sucker, uh, the Sergio Leone film. Duck, you sucker. So, uh, Duck, You Sucker, also known, by the way, as A Fistful of Dynamite and Once Upon a Time dot, 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 the revolution, um, is uh, a Western uh, about Zapata. Tell me a little bit about oh, what you love so much about this movie. Well, just a little bit of background. I mean, you have Sergio Leone, Dratiant, um, who with A Fistful of Dollars didn't actually invent wholesale the idea of doing a Western in Europe, but more or less more or less did, kicked off the spaghetti Western. And in, in after Once Upon a Time in the, Once Upon a Time in the West, 
uh, Leone decided to make his own Zapata Western, and that was this. And it's it's uh, other ones I've seen, the best of them. Keith, this is an interesting take on the Western, but I guess what I wonder is, you know, how did it how did it affect you? I was moved by it in ways that um, I wasn't by the first three. Leone Westerns, Fistful of Dollars, uh, For a Few Dollars More, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And I thought it was a really apt companion piece to Once Upon, Once Upon a Time in the West, which is my favorite Leone film, because not only is it a tremendously exciting film, it's a film about the death of the West and the death of the people that, that made the West. And there's a little bit of that in this, too. It's sort of about a – it's a it's sort of a thrilling Western, but also a film about um, – the people who bring about change and the ugliness of that process and what it, the human cost that it exacts. Keith Phipps recommends Duck You Sucker, sometimes known as A Fistful of Dynamite or Once Upon a Time, The Revolution uh, by Sergio Leone. And Tasha Robinson recommends Watership Down, the legendary novel by Richard Adams. Tasha and Keith are editors at the AV Club, which you can find online at avclub.com. You can also listen to the AV Club's podcast, Reasonable Discussions, for free in iTunes. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Scott Aukerman, is an accomplished comedy writer. He got his start writing for the beloved sketch comedy show, Mr. Show with Bob and David. And he's worked on everything from a Tenacious D movie to a Shark's Tale sequel to late night and primetime TV. He's written for the MTV Movie Awards, created one of the Internet's most beloved video series, Zach Galifianakis' Between Two Ferns. He even wrote once for about an hour on an Olsen Twins film. When he's not behind a keyboard, he's helped steward the alternative comedy scene in Los Angeles as the co-founder of Comedy Death Ray, probably the best regular comedy show anywhere. That live show, which he started in 2002 with writing partner B.J. Porter, became a radio show a few years ago, which begat a comedy podcast and now an empire of comedy podcasts under the brand Earwolf. Ackerman's podcast, now called Comedy Bang Bang, this year became an IFC TV show. It's an odd, twisted version of a late-night talk show with comedians doing in-character interviews, interstitial sketches, music from avant-garde music comedian Reggie Watts, and celebrity interviews that never go how you expect them to. Like this one, with comic and actress Amy Poehler. But how have you been? I've, I've heard some disturbing stories about you. Yeah, I'm, I haven't been good. Mm. I've been really negative and really down lately and pretty blue and not nice to people mm-hmm. and kind of dishonest and mean. I've been a little sneaky mm-hmm. and... Um, heard you've been stealing a lot of things? I've been borrowing things without permission and, and not telling people I took them. So That's yeah. just as bad as stealing. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I'm kind of on a downswing. Mm-hmm. What precipitated that? You know, I have uh, uh, a lot of mental problems. And, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean, guys? It can, it can be. Reggie, you know what she's talking about, right? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have any mental problems, Reggie? What? Do you want some? Oh, yeah. I, I love some. Scott, welcome to Bullseye. Hi, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, I... I think, you know, I, I've heard you so many times on our friend uh, Jamie Pardo's podcast, Never Not Funny. Never Not Funny. That's right. I've, I've, I've been on 
uh, at least once every season. I think the thing that uh, surprised me the most about that I learned about you personally from hearing you on Jimmy's show was your genuine, sincere passion for musical theater. Yeah, that's how I started. That's where I thought I was going to go in my career. I, I started doing musical theater in high school. I learned how to sing. I started singing opera um, and went to school for it, went to college for it, and then and then thought I was going to go to Broadway. And, that, and that's sort of where I saw myself going. I think a big turning point in your life was when you first you were you were you had sort of left the road of musical theater. You were doing a comedy show with uh, B.J. Porter and um, Bob Odenkirk, uh, one of the stars of Mr. Show with Bob and David, the titular Bob. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's what we call him. The titular Bob came to one of your shows. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about tell me about uh, meeting him. I had met him. Um, strangely enough, I'd met him before I even knew who he was. I think I'd seen him on the Ben Stiller show, but I didn't realize it was him. Um, I met him in a bar, and uh, you know the thing about Bob Odenkirk. If if anyone has ever met him, he's a very generous person to uh, new performers. I think the whole reason that Tim and Eric have a show is because they contacted him out of the blue and he went, oh, yeah, I like your stuff. Let's do a show together, which is... They literally were living in Pittsburgh and sent him a a video cassette. Which is insane when you think about it, because who, when you get involved in show business, has time to watch the things people send to you. He was a very generous person when I told him I was a writer. He's like, oh, I want to read your stuff. Um, So... Which is huge. When you first move to L.A. and are trying to do something, you you get a lot of people who are just like, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, let me know when you're, you know, you have something. Let me know when you're big or let me know when you're an accomplished person. Then we can talk. But he was just always, you know, willing to talk. So I'd met him briefly, but there was one particular week where I happened to see not only the Andy Kaufman NBC special, which was sort of a documentary about his career, which blew my mind. But I also saw Bob and David do a live show, which was the show that they ended up doing um, live on stage to get Mr. Show. And um, that was just mind-blowing to me. I'd never seen anything like it. It was my sense of humor. It was the stuff that I found funny, which I didn't think was on TV at the time. At the time, it was all—and I love Jerry Seinfeld, but it was like Seinfeld— you know, and, and uh, observational comedy, you know, and, and these guys were doing just, you know, really super dirty, uh, <laughs> which was very important <laughs> to me, super dirty uh, alternative stuff that I just thought was crazy. But it was very inspirational. It was quite literally the reason I started doing comedy. So for Bob then to be at our second performance and come up to, he came up to BJ. Uh, and said this and was like, hey, you guys um, should write on my TV show, was crazy. I mean, he 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 and David were the reason that we started, and it was it was a crazy moment. You know, it took a while to get on the show. It took another couple of years before he made good on that, you know, actually being on the show, but it was, it was fantastic. I mean, it was very... It, it's one of those times where you really feel like you're you're making the right choice. That was a show that was 
sort of transformational in its time and to get you know even if even over the course of a few years to get sort of folded into it must have been really remarkable although you know at the time outside of a very small cadre of people nobody was really watching it yeah we we developed into a cadre yeah uh, we really were like should we make a group out of this or really just form a cadre did you have some piece that you contributed to Mr. Show that you're particularly proud of looking back? In that fourth season, I had my fingers in a ton of stuff that I'm really proud of. The stuff that I think I generated myself. Uh, Monk Academy uh, was was one of my... And certainly we never wrote these things by ourselves necessarily. Uh, they were all with people. So when you take credit for something, you know, you, it's really the group taking credit. But I, I uh, did... Uh, the suing money, the Josh Fenderman sketch was was one of mine. Um, I actually the Everest, the Thimble sketch. Strangely enough, I wrote most of the later iterations of that by myself. Um, it was Jay Johnson's idea to knock over all the thimbles, but he only did it twice in the <laughs> sketch, and I was like, no, 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 let's do it eight times. And so I wrote most of those. This I think is a a really lovely example of the. Mr. Show aesthetic. Describe to me what the premise of this sketch was. The premise of the sketch is that a man returns. It's called Everest because a man returns from climbing Mount Everest. And he sees his family for the first time in years. And this is set back in the 30s, 40s, probably. He sees his family for the first time in years. And he starts to tell the story of how amazing it was to climb Mount Everest. And upon the wall are three different shelves filled with uh, decorative thimbles in a display. And in telling the story, he gets so animated that he knocks over the display and hundreds and hundreds of thimbles go flying on the ground. Cut to a little later, they've picked up all the thimbles. He starts telling the story again and makes the exact same hand motion, which then knocks over the thimbles again. I am so sorry, Mother. Once was funny, twice is just not being careful. And he does it over and over and over again to the point where his family does not want to hear the story about climbing Mount Everest anymore. They just want him to stop knocking over the thimbles. Anyone could have done it. The drink cart was right there. Yes, but no one would have leaned on it again. Not when they were talking about how they had just knocked it over. But I thought it was a stool. To how do you think that this was a stool? <laughs> Idiots! I am not an idiot. You asked to hear my story of conquering Everest, and so I told you. And in the course of things, I rested upon what I thought was a... <laughs> no! <laughs> no one help him! Let Thomas do it himself this time. Climb Mount Everest. <laughs> And what it, what it is to me really is that Mr. Show was absolutely fearless about transforming this comedy bit that traditionally, I mean, you might do it three times because three, times three number, of yeah. something is funny. 
basically transforming it from comedy sketch into just ongoing nightmare. Yeah. Well, it was you know that that's a really good example of Mr. Show how the writing process was so great there because we would and this was all Bob and David's process. We would never like a lot of talk shows throw away an idea if the first draft didn't work. Um, you hear stories about SNL where people will bring something to the table read. It won't get on the show. Even if it gets cut from the show, um, at the last minute, you're sort of not allowed to bring it back another week, which is insane. If something's funny, you should do it, you know. But on that show, if someone came and, and read a first draft to something and it wasn't very good, you would go for weeks and weeks and weeks rewriting it, trying to figure out, just having discussions. We would discuss for an hour, well, what is it about this that is funny, and how can we turn it into something? Which is a great process. Um, and that was that was an example of it, where Jay, this happened to him at a party. Um, I think it happened to him personally, where he... Thimble party. It wasn't it, it, it wasn't thimbles at that point. It was a barbecue or something. No, no. He, okay, he was in a, in a backyard barbecue. He leaned against the barbecue while telling a story, which was on wheels, and it, like, shot backwards into the wall and made something like thimbles knock over. And then he he resumed telling the story once they picked it back up and did the exact same thing, <laughs> which is funny. And, you know, and we were sitting there trying to think, how do you turn this into a sketch? And he wrote... I think four drafts of it where it just happened twice and it just wasn't getting there. And I remember uh, Dino Stamatopoulos and I uh, just looked at each other at one point in, during that fourth read and we're just like, let's have this happen 10 times. <laughs> and I was very influenced at the time by a sketch I saw Norm MacDonald do um, on Weekend Update where he... No, in fact, it was Charles Corralt. It wasn't on Weekend Update. It was his impression of Charles Corralt where he read where letters that were sent to him were from for about 90 seconds straight. <laughs> this one is from Poughkeepsie. This one is from Idaho. And he, <laughs> he did that for so long. So I was very influenced by that. And, and it was a hard thing for everyone to come around to because what I was pitching was let's – a normal sketch like that, well, it'll, it'll happen once. It'll happen a second time and it'll be a little shorter. And then the third time will be super short, and that's it. Let's do that once long, once shorter, third time shortest, fourth time even longer, fifth time shorter, sixth time short, seventh time even, even longer, eighth time even longer than that. So it's just like playing with your expectations in a really fun way that, um, you know, I thought ended up really funny. But even even Bob and David were... Like, I don't know about this. They, <laughs> until we did it live, which was a very weird sketch to do, having to clean up hundreds of thimbles in between takes. In front of a live audience. In front of a live audience who David then was keeping entertained by singing fake Italian songs, as I recall. <laughs> it, it was really an interesting sketch. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Scott Ackerman, is the host of Comedy Bang Bang on IFC and Comedy Bang Bang, the comedy podcast. Um, he also was a writer on Mr. Show with Bob and David. So you worked on basically every kind of comedy writing project um, hmm. in between uh, in between uh, the success of Comedy Bang Bang and um, Mr. Show. I mean, you wrote. Yeah, that's a good 10, 
12 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you wrote feature screenplays, you mm-hmm. wrote sketch TV shows, you wrote sitcom TV shows, you uh, worked as a, a person who added jokes to movies. Mm-hmm. Award shows. Award shows. Yeah. You, the most unusual credit that I uh that I heard that you had was writing on an Olsen twins movie. New York Minute. Ooh. <laughs> Is that the theme from the Olsen <laughs> no, that's twins the from Don, New York Minute? It should have been. It's uh, the Don Henley song, oh. <laughs> New York Minute. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, did, I, did, I worked for approximately one hour. Literally that. approximately one hour? Literally approximately one hour, which is hard to do. It's hard to get a job and then work for one hour. How is that even possible? Well, normally when you do a punch-up session, which is what they're called, which is where they gather a group of talented writers together, um, and you go through a script that is going to be in production soon and try to make the jokes better. Usually you're there all day. They're... um, I've done it for several different movies, and they can be fun, they can be tedious, but they pay very well. So I got hired to do it for New York Minute, and basically what happened was the director was in Vancouver about to make the movie. I think she was prepping the sets and all that kind of stuff. So she was on video teleconference, and we were all in the room, and we were trying to you know do what we could for it. So about an hour went by of us pitching jokes. Then all of a sudden, the video teleconference froze on her end. So, in other words, what what the director was seeing was us frozen, and she couldn't hear us anymore. But we could see and hear her. So she turns to her assistant and was like, oh, I guess they're frozen. They'll fix this soon. Boy, this is kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean... Oh, these jokes are terrible. <laughs> I don't think that uh, we'll ever do any of this stuff, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting process, isn't it? The producers of the movie, we look over at them and they're ashen. <laughs> and they shut it down really quickly and go, okay, we're going to take a little break and we'll uh, we'll figure this out. Basically, we took the break and we came back and they were like, yeah, we're going to uh, I think this is good for the day. We're We're going to call it here and that'll be it. And so they paid us an astronomical amount of money for one hour of work. And uh, yeah, that's how it, that's how Hollywood goes sometimes. I mean, one of the one of the frustrations of working as a writer is that in that 10 year period that we're talking about, mm-hmm. you were working consistently. Yes. Um, and nothing was getting made. Yeah. Almost almost none of the things that you were writing were appearing before the public. It's very hard to describe to your parents or to or when you're on dates of what you do when nothing that you're working on is seeing the light of day. I mean, if you look at my credits from that period, the only stuff that really got made are the movie Shark Tale. Um, And that may be it. I think that might be the only thing that ever... 2009 MTV Movie Awards. And the Movie Awards, yeah. So quite a long time in between projects. Uh, I make a really good living from it. I mean, they they pay you a lot of money to write a sitcom that never makes it to air. <laughs> but um, it all, it also was getting a little frustrating. And that's sort of where I, I, I learned to reside in my career is just not ever being surprised when um, you got the call to say that it wasn't going to happen. After a break, more with Scott Ackerman. Plus, David Reese leaves his uninspiring corporate drone job as an independent satirical political cartoonist, and dedicates himself to the art, yes, the art, of pencil sharpening. 
It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by Ask Metafilter, thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And Microsoft's Bing, a new way to search online at bing.com. It helps you search not just the web, but also your own social media networks and uh, has a new social media search sidebar, which allows you to ask your friends as well as experts the answers to your queries. Bing.com. Bing is for doing. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comic and writer Scott Ackerman. He's the creator and host of Comedy Bang Bang, a podcast that has now been transformed into a television show on IFC. One of the most beloved characters on your show is this Seth Morris character called Bob Duca. Yes. And I wonder if you could describe Bob Duca to me for a second. Bob Duca is a pitiful man. (laughs) He is the owner of the world's record for longest sigh. Um, Bob Duca is a character that Seth had done a couple of times that I'd seen him do on stage. A lot of stuff on my podcast, by the way, wasn't created for my podcast. It was, I've seen it on stage in in the show that I produce and said, hey, that would be good on my show. Let's get it in. So, So Seth had been doing this character of a man just with every ailment or disease known to man, and they're all sort of made up of a hot tub foot, uh, dirt belly. <laughs> just he has he has so much wrong with his body, um, and he he wears a neck brace, and he has uh, he's wearing a, 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 some sort of medical cast with a sock with a bloody toe because <laughs> his foot isn't able to grow the enzymes necessary to have toenails. Um, so it was just a really interesting character that I had on my show, and because sometimes I like to make the relationships between the characters and I a little more personal. I I said, hey, what if you were married to my mother for three years? You were my ex-stepfather-in-law. And the first time he did it, it was really something incredible to listen to. And he's been on my show several times. We've spun him off into his own podcast uh, called Affirmation Nation. And um, Seth is just a a genius. He is one of the few, I think, unrecognized geniuses in the L.A. comedy scene. Let's take a listen to uh, Seth Morris as Bob Duca listing his ailments uh, on Comedy Bang Bang. The following are some of the conditions, syndromes, complexes, and general discomforts of me. Can you slow down? (laughs) I want to make sure I get these. The following conditions. <laughs> I think she was being sorry. Oh. Go ahead. Yeah, just skip to the conditions. Restless leg syndrome. Okay. Fibromyalgia. High fiber fibromyalgia. Hot tub foot. Hot tub foot? Hot tub foot. Hot tub foot? Hot tub foot. Hot tub foot. Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm. Lou Barlow's disease. <laughs> Lucy Lou flu. Advanced moist shin disorder. I have a hypertolerance to lactose, urinary tract infection, urinary ache tract infection, Habsburg cholera, clogged arteries, dropsy, dry lip, intestinal colic. I'm allergic to indoor toilets. It's funny. It's sort of like, I mean, the people that you have on the people that you have doing characters on your show, folks like Andy Daly or, you know, Paul F. Tompkins. I mean, these people are as 
as funny and as good at this as a person could be. Right. Um, and then there's me. <laughs> no, but I mean, what? And and I get the impression that what you are doing is just enjoying. It's sort of like punching one of those children's clown punching bags <laughs> and just laughing every time it comes pops back up. I what I really like doing, and you'll hear this if you listen to the Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner records, is I love taking what could be construed as a planned interview where the comedian has funny things that they planned on saying uh, and forcing it into a territory which is unplanned, which to me is is magical. So, for instance, when when one of these people I talk to, like Paul F. Tompkins or Andy Daly or Seth Morris or James Adomian, when, when I'm talking to one of these comedians and I ask a question that gets us into a riff which you wouldn't even think the interview could go there. That's where it's really rewarding for me. Have you ever watched this? Uh, Billy Crystal hosted this special for PBS about the uh, writers for Sid Caesar's Hour and your show of shows. I have not seen that. I have seen the uh, Neil Simon play about your show of shows, Laughter on the something floor, 17th, 18th, 19th. There's I forget the, what floor it is. There's this scene in this PBS special where Carl Reiner is describing this conversation that he had one time with Mel Brooks. Apparently Mel Brooks would get very bored in writers' meetings because he was too busy being a genius inside of his own head. Right. Why and write for someone else when you're a genius? When you're the greatest genius of jokes that has ever right. lived. And um, he was sitting there one time, and he was covering his face in scotch tape. <laughs> and so Carl Reiner just sort of raised his hands and shut down the meeting and pretended he had a microphone in his hand and said, Excuse me, sir, what are you doing there? And, uh, and, and uh, Mel Brooks said, Oh, the Nazis! The Nazis did this to me, and, and Carl Carl in, in probably in more specific accent than that. And uh, Carl Reiner says, uh, "The Nazis, the Nazis, sir, the Nazis beat you up and threw you in this ditch." And then and then Mel Brooks said, "No, they covered my face with this tape." <laughs> and I think it's sort of like there's something wonderful about going somewhere, discovering something yes. ridiculous that you weren't expecting. That's if you listen to those records that they made together, they were a huge influence on me. You, I do believe Carl Reiner, um, he's he's playing a little too straight, or not, I don't mean to criticize it. What I mean to say is straighter than I like to play it. Um, but that, that when you listen to those records, they're a lot like listening to my show. Of of they didn't plan any of that stuff out, and the places that they go are are just incredible, and and the minds working are are fantastic, and it, it's really special. I, I want to play a clip from the TV show. Uh, this is my guest Scott Ackerman on his TV show on IFC Comedy Bang Bang, and uh, he's talking with Will Forte, who's playing. An, a, a hero airline pilot who lands his plane in the middle of a city, uh, uh, although that turns out not to be the whole story. Uh, can I ask you to take us through that harrowing day? Uh, yeah, I knew that I had to put her down. Right. So I dipped the controls, and then by then I had hit the ground. What was the problem with the aircraft? Mechanically? Mecha yeah, mechanically. Nothing. I, I was flying unsafely close to the ground because uh, I had been tailing my ex-girlfriend. 
She had a situation with a gentleman named Rick. Can I ask, where was she? She in another airplane? She was in a car. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So you were telling Suzuki you... sidekick. She's on. She's driving on the streets, and you're following her from an airplane. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So, what did your passengers think? There was not a peep from them because there was not a one passenger on my flight. I was in the, the plane alone. I had read that that no one on board died. Oh, that's true. That's yes. true. Right. No casualties. Oh, okay. Good. On board. There were a lot of casualties on the ground. We lost a lot of people. It was a bloodbath. There was a blood and body parts everywhere. Everywhere. What you don't see is after every single thing he said, me going, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And then me <laughs> resetting and asking the question. He made me laugh more than anyone on the show. That uh, that was the hardest to keep a straight face. So when you decided to, or when you had the opportunity to uh, take this and move it to television, mm-hmm. Um, you know, television is a format that, uh, probably doesn't tolerate the kind of 25 minute exploration of a character (laughs) that you can do in a podcast. When I first got the opportunity to do it, it was a challenge to try to figure out, okay, how do I take this show, which without commercials is an hour and 15 minutes and turn it into a half hour version with pictures and about 30 of them per second. (laughs) Um, I what I decide to do with the TV show is is I sort of liken it to the Marvel universe and the Ultimate universe. Um, for comic book lovers, there's Spider Man. You've all known him since the '60s. He's your friendly neighborhood Spider Man, Peter Parker. But they also put out a different uh, parallel universe comic book, which is Ultimate Spider Man. Who he is a half Hispanic, half African American kid. Um, his name is Miles Morales. So they're they're similar in the sense that they have you know, they're both Spider-Man, but um, the difference between the TV show and the podcast is we have less time to get into everything. It's very fast-paced. Um, the podcast is is languid to the extreme, and the TV show is, is uh, at a hyper-accelerated pace. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to have you back on the My show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and good luck with this particular episode and all the episodes you do. (laughs) Scott Ackerman is the host of Comedy Bang Bang on IFC. It airs Fridays at 10 p.m. In the interest of full disclosure, Comedy Bang Bang airs on IFC, an underwriter of this program. But our development and editorial processes are completely separate. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Anyone who listens to this show knows how passionate I am about artisanal American craftsmanship. That's why I'm so excited to have met David Reese. For nearly 10 years, Reese was locked in a corporate drone job as an independent satirical political cartoonist. Then in 2010, he threw off the shackles of his day-to-day work and dedicated himself to the craft of pencil sharpening. For the past two years or so, he's been working with a straight blade, crafting a fine point for bespoke customers around the globe. David Reese, it is such a pleasure to have you on Bullseye to talk about pencil sharpening. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. What speaks to you about pencil sharpening as a craft? Um, I think the appeal, there are multiple appeals 
The first um, for me and I think for many of my clients is nostalgia. I decided to start my pencil sharpening business when I had a job working at the census in 2010. And on the first day of staff training, they made us all sharpen pencils using a single blade pocket sharpener. And it had been so long since I had sharpened a pencil, I just had this wave of nostalgia and satisfaction. And I told myself that I was going to figure out how to get paid to sharpen pencils. How did you learn to sharpen a pencil? Well, I grew up using pencils. I was a terrific doodler and a um, graph paper maze maker. And um, so I always uh, used pencils. And even in my early years as a cartoonist, before I discovered the wonders of clip art, so I came up using a lot of pencils. Can you describe to me uh, what you do that's different from what I might do with a dull pencil at home? First of all, um, it depends on what kind of device you would be using to refresh the point on your dull pencil. If you're going to use just an electric pencil sharpener, then then you and I have almost nothing in common um, because I'm not really a fan of electric pencil sharpeners. They're consistent, but their their consistency is usually uh, comes at the cost of mediocrity. Um, what I can do, especially if I'm using a pen knife or a box cutter is offer the client a wide variety of pencil points based on their needs and their interests, what they plan to use the pencil for. Give me some examples of pencil sharpeners that you carry with you uh, at all times as you travel the country. Well, the most important pencil sharpener in my collection, even though it's one that I rarely use anymore, is the pink plastic single-blade pocket sharpener that was issued to me by the United States government in my capacity as a census enumerator because that's the sharpener that started me on this journey. One of my favorite is the Alvin Brass Bullet, which is just a well-machined, heavy brass pocket sharpener with a replaceable blade. I have a multi-hole, multi-stage pocket sharpener, which operates under the same principles, except that the first hole, the first blade, just exposes the graphite, and then the second blade actually shapes the graphite. I also have the world's most expensive pencil sharpener, the El Casco 430, which is a double burr hand crank sharpener. So I have a variety of pencil pointing technologies. And then, of course, for finishing the point, I have high-grit sandpaper, 220, 320 sandpaper rags to clean myself and to clean my pencil sharpeners. I also have uh, double-power illuminated magnifying lenses if I want to get a good close look at the pencil sharpener. There's a bunch of stuff in there, toothbrushes and wooden toothpicks for cleaning the sharpeners. You have to keep them clean just like with any other knife, any other blade, replacement blades, replacement box cutter blades. I have eye drops. You know, I have a lot of stuff in my little travel kit. And pencils, of course, unsharpened pencils. There are pencil technologies that do not require sharpening. Um, I'm referring specifically to the mechanical pencil. And I wonder how you feel about those. I actually have a chapter in my book on mechanical pencils um, because I knew that I was going to have to address that. Um, and it was a pretty quick chapter to write I, after giving it a lot of thought. Uh, the direction that I wanted to take was pretty intuitive. Um, I'd be happy to read it to you. Sure. This is David Reese reading from his book, How to Sharpen Pencils. Chapter 11, a few words about mechanical pencils. Mechanical pencils are bullshit. David Reese, thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. David Reese's new book is... How to Sharpen Pencils, a practical and theoretical treatise on the artisanal craft of pencil sharpening. (music) 
After a break, I'll talk to Mark Duplass about how his career as a filmmaker was informed by his experience as a musician. And I remember always grabbing my acoustic guitar with my crappy Pro Tools rig, and I would throw together the, the demo of the new song I'd written. It would take me 45 minutes. There were aberrations in time, and the pitch was off. And then a year later, I would go into the studio to record it, and it was never as good as the demo to me. And I could never figure that out, and I could never reconcile that. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Parlick Radio International. Hey, gang, it's me, Jesse. We just finished Max FunCon on the West Coast. It was an amazing good time. It changed innumerable lives. You could probably put a number on it because there's only a couple hundred people there. Anyway, moral of the story is Max FunCon East is coming up in October in the Poconos, which we are putting on with some help from our friends at WNYC in New York. It is going to be a blast. We are already three-quarters sold out, so don't wait for that lineup announcement to buy your tickets because there might not be any tickets left. If you want more information, you want to get some tickets now, go to MaxFunCon.com. MaxFunCon East is October 26th through 28th in the Poconos. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us at Twitter.com slash Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Mark Duplass and his brother Jay made their first short film nearly 10 years ago. Their 2005 feature film, The Puffy Chair, was a breakthrough for cinema on a new scale. The Duplass brothers' films have largely been intimate, shot digitally, and driven by improvised dialogue, often mixing intense emotion with surprising humor. Earlier this year, Mark and Jay directed their first studio film, Jeff Who Lives at Home, about a slacker's quest for meaning in the universe. It's just out on DVD. Their newest film, The Dodeca Pentathlon, hits theaters July 6th. Mark Duplass is often in front of the camera as well. He's one of the stars of the FX comedy The League, and he's currently in theaters as the star of Your Sister's Sister. He finds himself caught in a tense triangle in that film between two sisters as all three try to sort out the next step in their lives. In this scene from Your Sister's Sister, the two half-sisters, played by Emily Blunt and Rosemary DeWitt, talk about their father. Mark Duplass, my guest, chimes in with some extra-familial insight. Moved to London. Moved to London. Got bored of Lenora. And then he moved on. And then he kind of philandered around for like seven years. He went through his crazy Warren Beatty phase. The funny thing, though, about those years when he was so bad with the ladies, he was so good with us because that was... He wasn't. No, but that was like six summers. That was just the three of us. I know, but you were okay with it. I had no respect for that. He just went... He dodged from one to the other, and it was gross. That's so crazy. So he would just, like, date all these women, like, for short periods of time with not a lot of emotional investment. And they were very similar, and then he would just move on. Yeah. That's just weird. Who does that? Oh! And the patterns emerge! What are you doing? I'm sorry. Skinny jeans, George. Skinny jeans, Harry. Skinny jeans, Vinny. Vinny lasted for at least two weeks. He was one of the longer ones. I don't like dating. You know that. I don't like dating. I don't like romancing it. I don't like it. This I is, get bored. I don't like it. Do you know how the IRS dating scheme works these days? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, this, this is basically how it works. I mean, in a nutshell. So they come in with the skinny jeans. They're, yes, skinnier than these, by the way. Oh, then we've got the rocker stud belt, converse, no socks, torn <laughs> open, no shoelaces, the swoopy haircut. Which you over. have right now, by well, the way. Well, I, I have it because I have hair problems. These guys, are, <laughs> these guys are young enough. They should not be swooping. 
Mark Duplass, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Mr. Jesse. Um, I, I admired you in that scene, by the way, for having a character that says something about having hair problems. Why? What's going on? Why? Well, I mean, I let's just say that I'm working at about 75% at this point um, on top of my head. You can you can say 75% because they can't see you right now, but let's call it what it is. 70%. You got it. There we go. That's 70. Yeah. I'm working at 70%. If I was in a film, I don't I think I would do anything accessible to me, anything within my power. Not to mention that fact. This is a good point. This is a good point. Um, yes, my agents are not happy with me saying that in the film. <laughs> but you know what? At the end of the day, um, if I'm going to be in a movie where I could potentially be a romantic interest to Rosemary DeWitt and or Emily Blunt, um, my only chance is honesty. That's that's really that's really what it comes down to. I'm just going to lay it out there and see what happens. Um, you really have, I mean, you were, we were trying to remember when you were last on the show. Um, but when you were last on the show, you were just getting ready, uh, to make Jeff who lives at home. And you, you at this point are putting out about a thousand movies in a television program. Um, and I wonder how you manage your life. Well, I think it looks uh, like I work more than I do because there just happens to be uh, quite a few projects that are coming out this summer that have bottlenecked for whatever reason. So um, I'm not an insane maniac. That being said, I am a maniac, um, <laughs> and I do admit to this, and I am a desperately driven human being. And key is that um, I'm a big collaborator with my community of filmmakers and friends, and and I really believe in getting art to 95% and then surrendering it to your peers to have them tell you how to get it the rest of the way. They give me notes, figure it out. And and I think that I'm also okay sending a piece of art into the world that's only at 95%. I mean, The Puffy Chair was a really good example of that because it was our first feature film and we were just beating ourselves up uh, you know, for three months in editorial trying to take it from a B to an A in our opinion. Um, and then we decided to hold a screening of the movie uh, for about 40 people. And the feedback came back unanimously about what the three or four major problems were with the movie. And within two hours, we had all of our solutions. And I'm, I'm very much not the auteur who's like, I see the whole movie in my head and this is it. I, I like to get it on its feet and then have the audience help me and lead me to the end. We actually have a clip from The Puffy Chair. Um, this is your character, Josh, your wife's character, Emily, they're explaining to your character's brother um, the purpose of this road trip that they're going to go on um, after watching one of his home movies. So this is like a road trip then? Is this what you, what is this? Remember the puffy chair when Mm -hmm. we were little? Yeah. I found a replica of it on eBay and I bought it from this dude and... Emily and I are driving in the van to pick it up. Okay. And Dad's birthday is next week. So it's a surprise present mm. for him. Dude, I didn't so. know it was Dad's birthday. I forgot. Oh, man. yeah, yeah. What is the day? The 12th? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh shit. Yeah, man. Damn, dude, I got to get him something, too. You should give him that. that give him a copy movie. of the movie. Oh, this, this thing? Yeah. It's pretty amazing. See how he reacts, man. I think this is like a. You don't think he'd dig it? I think mom would dig it. 
I know mom would dig it. I think dad would dig it. He could use it, you know? He could use something like that. I guarantee you that dude never sat in the bushes and saw something like that. He never took the time. You're right. He never sat in the bushes and filmed lizards. There's something that has to be, that's sort of inherently imperfect about making a movie this way because you are surrendering so much control. You know, I, I was thinking about, um, I, I was thinking about like a George Lucas movie. You know how George Lucas wants to replace actors with robots? Yes. <laughs> you know what I'm talking yes. about? This different stuff that he wants to do. He likes, he likes the idea that what, that he can polish every element they are, they are mere pawns to exact his vision as he sees it playing in his head. Exactly. And, and that he wants to use technology, essentially, to get closer and closer to the exact vision that he has in his head. Yeah. And he's, he wants to polish everything to exactly what that thing is. And when a movie is made the way that uh, you and your brother have largely made movies and that you've made a lot of movies with your sort of friends and collaborators as an actor— there is something that is you cannot polish it to perfection because it just is not that. I think I agree with you, and and I I think about that a lot to be honest with you. And, and I spent a lot of years as a musician in my late teens and early twenties, um, and I remember um, always grabbing my acoustic guitar with my crappy Pro Tools rig, and I didn't have the right instruments. And I would throw together the the demo of the new song I'd written. It would take me forty five minutes just to slap it all together, and and you know there were aberrations in time, and the pitch was off, um, and and it was always so inspired and raw and amazing. And then a year later, I would go into the studio to record it, and it was never as good as the demo to me. And I could never figure that out, and I could never reconcile that. And I think there's something to that uh, approach with our filmmaking now, which is we're improvising, we have multiple cameras. I really just want to get an environment that is most conducive to lightning striking. I don't care what the flavor of that lightning is. I just want it to feel raw and really fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor and filmmaker Mark Duplass. He co-stars in the new film Your Sister's Sister. He's also written and directed a movie with his brother Jay, The Dodeca Pentathlon. It's in theaters July 6th. How did you approach Jeff Who Lives at Home differently, which is a film that... um, is it's essentially about fate. Um, it's a very existential film. I mean, like a lot of stoner comedies. Mm. Um, but it, it's about fate, and it builds towards a big climax mm-hmm. um, without you know revealing too much about it. Um, that's in order to get to where you need to go to have a big climax you have to know you have to have a roadmap. yeah i mean jeff is uh is our most intensely plotted film um that being said you know we're still shooting our films in sequential order we're still improvising as we go and there's room for a lot of aberration and the interpersonal dynamics um and uh and so there's still room for it to breathe um but um we stayed on the rails a little bit more with Jeff just by the nature of the plotting uh than our previous films. But, you know, even though there's car chases in that movie and a and a big climax as you say, um we still tried to maintain that that fly on the wall documentary ethic, you know, it just there's something about when you're watching a documentary and they don't have the footage or if they have the footage, it's from a 
terribly disadvantageous angle. That's just inherently dramatic to me. And I don't know what it is, you know, but when you a lot of times the climaxes of documentaries happen in a black and white title card or through a side angle because they've been kicked out um, and you're watching it through the glass from across the street with subtitles and that subtle, um, I guess, underplayed serving of the big meal is like one of my favorite things. And I'm trying to bring that into narrative cinema as much as I can. In the case of your sister's sister, it's 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 basically a Shakespearean bed switching comedy um, that we tried to do in a naturalistic way. You know, you can look at that movie and, and the great challenge of your sister's sister is how do we avoid this thing becoming a 90 minute episode of Three's Company? Um, and that was exciting to me because I wanted those like those the fun and those hijinks of comedy, but trying to find it in that in that kind of uh, I guess underhanded, disadvantageous, subtle way was the was the challenge of the film. Um, speaking of films that could very well have turned into a ninety minute episode of a sitcom, um, your new movie, The Dodeca Pentathlon, yes, um, is uh, is about a pair of brothers locked in in very different places in their lives, uh, locked in this elemental battle. So there are these two brothers that we uh, grew up with uh, in New Orleans. Um, these two brothers in real life decided they were going to create a 25-event personal Olympics that only they would compete in to determine who would be the better brother. And I put that in quotes. <laughs> Not the better athlete, the better brother for all time. Um, they did this in high school. It ended in controversy. Um, the parents had to stop it because they were destroying each other. Um, so what we uh, constructed our film about is uh, these guys getting together 20 years later, intensely out of shape for um, you know a, a birthday party at their mom's house, and the games get reignited. Um, I want to play a clip from the movie. This is uh, Jeremy and Mark, the brothers of the film, played by uh, Mark Kelly and Steve Zissis. Uh, they are apologizing for acting like crazy people in the midst of this competition in front of their family, but... Um, then even that sort of starts to get out of control. Uh, I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but uh, Jeremy and I have been talking, and uh, we think that it's uh, time for us to move past all our uh, immature antics and um, just be just be brothers. I'm going to go ahead and say I'm at fault for a majority of all the tension that's taken place, and... I apologize, and I'm just uh, a little embarrassed, to be honest with it's you. It's not your fault. I mean, uh, we're... Yes, it is. Well, I'm accepting responsibility for my actions, too. It's a 50-50 thing. It's not going to be solved today. Right. It's not going to be solved tomorrow, but we're, you know, we've made a... We're going to make a concerted effort this weekend to turn over a new leaf and find the love that we... It's there. There's no love lost. It's just we can't find it right now, and we're looking for it. Uh, we should explain that that entire performance is a lie. It is what they would call a smoke screen. Um, <laughs> they do call it a smoke screen. <laughs> in fact, in fact, a, a massively constructed veneer so that they can appear to be good boys whilst behind this veneer continue to destroy themselves um, in miniature sporting events. It's interesting to me because um, probably the thing that you're most likely to get recognized on the street for is the FX comedy The League, which is really funny and um, 
on that show, you are, you know, you're you're more the straight guy than any other guy on the show. I mean, you 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 you're not called upon to do a lot of joking, but you know, you're working with people like Nick Kroll, for example, is never ever going to miss a joke. Yeah, you know, that's a person who has. D- dedicated his life to thinking of a perfect joke at the perfect moment. He could try, but he wouldn't miss it. <laughs> he could re- it, would, it would be really hard for him. And so that show, that show, the um, you know the emotions which are definitely there are a grounding for the jokes. Um, and in this movie, you it feels like you've somehow turned that around. Like you've taken what should be a grounding for jokes and decided to get into the actual feelings of it. Yeah, and I, and I think that that is very true, and I think that's very particular because the sports genre itself, um, you know, is is an interesting thing because, you know, it's such a fist-pumping genre. Um, and so it was just very exciting for us to explore, you know, um, an emotional sports movie, but not in the not in the way that you're actually rooting for them to succeed in the sports. Um one where you're actually terrified for them in a, to a certain degree and, and feel really bad for what they're doing to each other. You know, it's just it felt like a little bit of a new form. So it was exciting. One interesting thing that I was struck by as I watched the movie was the music in the film is very sports film e, And as even it is a very powerful thing to be watching this competition between these adult brothers that you hate, you hate that this is happening to them, um, and to have that sort of lizard brain cue of "Here comes the sports movie music," I am being inspired. Well, when trumpets start playing a fanfare, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you're feeling at the moment. Um, something says Olympics, something says Iraqi, something something triggers Rudy in you. But you've, um, and you've you done pump. something very cruel, which is that <laughs> you have set it up so that as soon as you start feeling those feelings, and when you're watching Rudy, you know, I watched Rudy in the movie theater with my mom. Yeah. Um, when we were watching Rudy, you want that. Yes. That is all you want in the world is to go on that it's journey. It's a very simple feeling. And they ask you to root for them, and the music does the same thing. You have you have essentially used that feeling that 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 a sports movie can create to um, you know kick people in the emotional junk. It's a little it's a little bit of discomfort, you know. But it I feel the way that I feel about uh, Mark Borchardt from American Movie, um, which is you know they set this character up and. Um, he is a terrible father. Um, he's a terrible brother. He is an alcoholic. He's not that nice and actually not too intelligent in a lot of ways. Um, but but they make him into your hero somehow, and you start rooting for him to win. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to do that with one of my movies and create a character like that, but I aspire to that feeling. Do you think you could make a movie with um and I don't want to upset your agents with your answer to this but do you think you could make a movie with like Denzel Washington or Tom Cruise because your your the stars of uh the stars of the Dodeca Pentathlon are both super normal looking people yeah um 
you are a super handsome dude, but you have uh, the special gift of looking normal when you're also super handsome. Um, and and even the stars of Jeff Who Lives at Home are movie stars who are the most normal of movie stars mm-hmm. ever. You know, like Ed they Helms have, is... The everyman side of movie star, yeah. Exactly. Like, do, do you think that you could... Do you think that that would be a useful tool to you to have someone that is magic, like I, George Clooney or whatever? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I might be naive, but I, when you were asking me that question, my first instinct was to say, if they had the desire to be in one of our movies after seeing what it is, I would believe that that is all that is required because that means that they would intrinsically want to get themselves at least close to that place. Um, and I do believe that, you know, in the right outfit and in the right haircut, we're all kind of a certain type of person, you know? Um, so uh, the key for us when we're talking about working with movie stars is like, you know, it's not like, oh, can they improvise? Are they, are, you know, are they capable of looking a certain way? It's really just all about the desire. If you're a good actor and you are interested in being a co-collaborator and exploring great and not everybody is, you know, we've taken meetings with certain actors that we love and we can just tell like, they love the script. They want to march through the script. They don't want to swim in the sea of infinite possibility all day on set with, you know, two dudes in hoodies. I get it, you know. Um, but if the desire is there, I believe the product would work. Do you worry when you're swimming in the sea of infinite possibilities that you're going to drown? All the time, man. There's a, there's a moment that Jay and I talk about on set, which is when the scene is not working and we're improvising and we're trying to find it. And we've come to the end of that improvisation and it's still not working. And there's a hundred crew members around and there's studio execs and producers. And all that they want to hear is that we got the scene and it's time to move on so we can stay on schedule and do our jobs and do the next movie. And this is how mediocre movies are made. This is what I believe. You know, the pressure to say we've got it and move on um, is why directors cave and, and they leave a set when they know they haven't gotten the scene. And we never do that. But it's the worst feeling in the world when Jay and I leave set to go take an hour-long walk around the block while everybody's on the clock. And we know they're back there just thinking, what the fuck are these guys doing? Do they know anything about how to make a movie? Um, And it's terrifying. And we sometimes don't have the answers. But I just believe that if you have to ask yourself if you've gotten it, you most certainly didn't get it. And um, even though those people will hate you in the moment and doubt you, They'll be real happy six months to a year later when the movie comes out, and that's what you got to bank on. That must be a nice time to be working with your brother. It is so helpful. I don't believe I would have the fortitude to do it if I didn't have a partner with me um, to, to you know make people wait, to, to stick in there. It's just... You know, we we have this constant seesaw of strength going on between us, and people always ask, "Well, who does what or who does what?" And the thing is, we we both do everything, and we wake up in the morning, we look at each other on you know, and and it's very obvious who's going to take the lead that day. One of us is feeling small, and one of us is feeling big, and 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 yeah, that companionship is is priceless. Well, what are the what are the uh, challenges of it? What are the difficulties of it? It's very it's very hard to say because um, the good so easily dwarfs uh, the bad um, that I don't think about the bad as much. I mean, immediately it's if you think about it like a marriage, you know, it's the like when you're deciding where you want to go on vacation, 
Well, when you're not married, you just go wherever you want to go, you know. But when you're married, you got to take into account, well, she doesn't love the sun that much, and I do, and is there a compromise? And I hate the beach. Yeah, exactly. I do care you don't the like beach. the beach, okay? So you and I would have a problem. because I just be- wants to read a book and I, hang out. I'm a beach guy, her you know. So, you, yeah, so maybe we could work on a swinging thing later. But um, <laughs> to the point of my, my grand metaphor I'm drawing here, you ultimately want to be on vacation with your wife, and it's better to take a uh, compromised vacation with your wife than it is to take the perfect vacation alone. And that really is what it comes down to with Jad. I'd much rather be in 80% of what I want to make with him than in 100% alone. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor and filmmaker Mark Duplass. He co-stars in the new film Your Sister's Sister. He's also written and directed a movie with his brother Jay, The Dodeca Pentathlon. It's in theaters July 6th. I want to ask you about your music career, which we didn't talk about at all the last time you were on the show. Um, you were, when you were very young, you had a, uh, uh, you had a real record contract. Um, and you actually, from what I read, lost the ability to play guitar physically. Kind of. That, that got a little overblown in the press at times, but I did develop really bad, uh, they called it tendonitis in my wrist, but I, I had to give up my like little Ernest Troubadour, Ron Sexsmith singer-songwriter career when I was like 22 um, because I couldn't play acoustic guitar every night for you know 200 nights out of the year. Um, so then I kind of moved into different forms of making music. That's a, I mean, you're you are downplaying that, and I understand. You know, there's a difference between not being able to you know, pick up, touch a guitar because right. it's electrified and you'll die. You're allergic to guitars yes. and you'll blow up like a balloon or whatever. But um, there's a difference between that and, and just not being able to do it night in and night out. But that's still, you know, when you are reaching for the brass ring of music stardom and you and it is working out. Yeah, yeah. It was, hor- it was horrible. It was a terrible time in my life and I was really really depressed and i you know i learned a lot from it and it was great because i started playing this casio keyboard that i could play because it was easy and it didn't hurt my hands and then i built this whole new sound out of it and then we created this other band that did really well with that and then i was also writing scripts a lot at the time because i was still trying to make movies and i literally couldn't sit at a computer and write scripts um and i was thinking to myself at the time I can't write this brilliant script that I want to write. Um, and what I know now is that the, the script that I was writing was was terrible. Um, and I had to create a new way of writing, which was I would speak the entire script into a dictaphone. Um, a- everything. You know, I would say the character name, the dialogue, the description. Um, and it was a complete breakthrough, again, for me creatively, just as it was switching from guitar to keyboards. And it taught me a huge lesson, you know, about like the whole uh, lemons and lemonade thing, not to be too reductive, but like what you think is good for you and what you think is working for you, you know, it could just as easily be something else. And when I started speaking out the scripts, I learned how to write scripts in about a week because you do that and then you blast them out and they have this perfect pacing. The dialogue's a little clunky. The scene description needs a lot of work, but your body tells you immediately what you need. Time for a fast scene, time for a slow scene. Time for the I'm sorry scene. Here we go. And that is uh, that moment when I couldn't write on a computer and went to the dictaphone is why I can make so many movies so quickly now. Is I, I learned how to trust my instinct 
and and it took me way out of my head and, and right into this kind of, kind of gut phase of making making art. Did you physically recover? Did you get back to zero? Yeah, you know, I don't I don't play as much now, and I think if I started playing again, it, it would still be there to a certain degree. Um, but um, you know, over the years, I you know just by not playing and resting the arms a little bit, they got a lot better. And I think I realize now too that you know. Um, there was a tenacity and an intensity to which I was approaching my art that like was affecting me physically as well too. So I think part of it was physical rehabilitation, but also like mentally growing up a little bit too. It sounds like part of what was going on and forgive me for, you know, dime store psychologizing, but it feels like getting to the point of um, just letting yourself make something good even if it's not perfect, is part of what was going on there. Absolutely, man. I um I had a big breakthrough when I listened to those Yankee Hotel Foxtrot demos. You know when Wilco released those, and I just liked them better than than the record. You know, um, and you know that kind of dovetails with what we were talking about earlier and my my comfort and excitement at making art that lands at ninety five percent, and to a certain degree the surrender of that, and and I think. I really don't want to burn out. I'm really afraid of that for some reason. Like some of my favorite artists just lose it at a certain and they just lose their ability to make anything good. And um, I kind of believe that if I don't destroy myself over every piece of art that I think I'll live longer creatively and I'll I'll just be able to, you know, be relevant longer maybe. And that's one of the things that I've I've uh, admired my whole life about like Woody Allen. Someone who can just write a script. You know, I mean, at the at the heart of Woody Allen for all his auteur brilliance is a guy who taught himself to write 300 jokes a day to submit to columnists. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and like, frankly, you know, sometimes you get a curse of the Jade Scorpion, <laughs> which I did not even make it all the way through. Yeah. But um, I'm OK with that with my career. I'm totally OK with that. I don't know if I've made one yet. I'm sure some people think I have. Um, but, yeah, I'm I'm totally fine with, with getting some stinkers out there. I just want to move and do my stuff. But let me ask you this question. The way that you make films, you have financed many of your films yourself, you and your brother have, um, which puts you, even when you're making them for a very small amount of money, which puts you makes you exposed in a way that you wouldn't be if you were just doing work for hire. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I were in that position, I guess I sort of am in that position. I you own, are. I own this show. Um, I, I finance it myself, probably at a loss. Um, then, then you you have to worry about if it's going to work because if it doesn't work, then you're actually losing your money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a certain degree of that. I mean, I guess if you get down to the, you know brass of it I, I i usually only finance a project that i'm really certain will make its money back um so i'm not going crazy out on a limb like coppola used to do to himself um you you uh, you actually financed the paris hilton sex tape yes i did it um, seemed like a good bit safe bet a safe was, bet was. people were interested at the time exactly exactly um and then you know i guess with uh the way to finance movies now has gotten a lot easier for us because I think in the last couple of years, um, 
I guess our stock has risen to a certain degree where we can now get really great writing assignments in the studio system. And also my paycheck from the league is real good. And, and so, you know, I've always admired like John Cassavetes and, and, and to a certain degree, John Sales is these guys who had two facets to their careers where John Cassavetes would go act in a movie, make some money, go blow it making his weird movie. And uh, John Sales still to this day is a big script doctor in Hollywood, you know, makes a huge, huge fee rewriting scripts and then goes and makes his art, you know. So I really like that model of uh, siphoning off some of that stuff and, and keeping, you know, the, the little precious things we do special for us. Is there work that you'd like to do that you would be that you're worried about doing because you are worried that you might accidentally leave it at seventy five percent or ninety five percent? Yes, but the, that that worry also turns into excitement too. You know, um, I I'm actually like working on a. Um, a novel adaptation right now for someone and it's uh and it's somewhat new territory for me so i guess there's a chance that i could like fall down a little bit um but that's also equally exciting to me and and i try to be smart in what i take because half of the work is exactly what i do and the other half is is somewhat new so it's you know only venturing one foot outside of town um but as an actor i'm also very interested in exploring some different things i just did um, a small role on Catherine Bigelow's new movie. Um, and that was really exciting for me to do something completely different than I've done before. And I'm, you know, I've become good friends with, um, with Jonah Hill after he did Cyrus. And I really liked what he's been able to do with his career and diversify. And, and he was scared shitless going into Moneyball and ready for the world to just tear at him. And it worked out really well for him. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in doing some, some different stuff as an actor as well. Do you, do you audition to be a movie star? I don't audition um, because I don't have time to do it, quite honestly. And I guess that could be an answer to your question of uh, how do you have, quote-unquote, time to do all these things. I don't take general meetings. I don't do auditions. I don't um, fight for writing work or directing work. I don't read other people's scripts that I might direct. I think you waste a lot of time doing that. So I, I'm, I, I do, I guess, to a certain degree, protect my time and make sure – if I'm working on something, I feel like it's something that's going to get made, you know. Um, so, you know, I guess I guess um, I get roles because people see what I make on my own and they like it and they, and they offer it to me. I rarely go into rooms and kind of, you know, audition for stuff. Do you have a trajectory in mind, like a place that you would love to be in 30 years? I would – I mean this is going to sound crazy, but – I want to hold. <laughs> this is like I, I have no desire to climb anymore. I just want to like sustain where I'm at right now. My, I never thought I would get this far and be able to do all the stuff that I do as a writer and as an actor and as a producer and as a director. Um, I just want to like make my movies and take them to Sundance and then some years the industry will want me and let me make Jeff Who Lives at Home and then other years maybe they won't. So I'll make some indies and that's okay. I'm I'm fine with that. 20% sine cosine uh, fluctuation um, but I basically want to be here and still inspired you know, which you know again it concerns me you know when I think about some of these some of these people you see just like rock out this amazing you know string of art from 32 to 41 and then all of a sudden what happened are you cool with holding like are you do you have to check yourself in order to 
to do that? I mean, I won't. I'll be honest with you. I don't think I'm going to hold. I think it's going to get bigger because um, I just know my personality and it's just going to keep going. And I'm, I, I can't stop myself. I'm definitely like, I guess a workaholic is probably a good term for what I am. You know, when, when an exciting project comes to me, I just can't say no. Um, so I do believe it's going going to increase, you know. Um, but if the universe or the industry or whatever decided that this was all they want from me, that would honestly, that would be more than I ever thought I would get. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to come back on Bullseye. Always fun, Mr. Thorne. Mark Duplass is... Oh, gosh. There's a long list. He is the star of or one of the stars of your sister's sister which is in theaters now uh his new film made with his brother as writer and director is dodeca pentathlon which is in theaters july 6th jeff who lives at home is out on dvd and blu-ray and uh besides all that i'm looking forward to the return of uh, the league on fx awesome jesse thanks for having me thanks mark Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Some records are about virtuosity. Jimi Hendrix rips out an amazing guitar part that blows your mind. Sometimes they're about feelings. Joni Mitchell taking you on an emotional journey. Sometimes it's power. ACDC pushing you into the red. Sometimes the appeal of a record isn't about those clear things, though. Sometimes you just get swept up by a texture swept into a, a state of being. I bought Blowout Comb by the hip-hop group Diggable Planets when it came out in 1994. I was 13, and it was my favorite rap record, almost from the opening fanfare. On most hip-hop albums, the beats come from a dozen different producers. Each one is an attempt to do two things. One, showcase an MC. And two, try for a hit. Blowout Comb is the opposite of that. Diggable Planets had had a huge hit the year before with their album Reachin' uh, that won them a Grammy and the single Rebirth of Slick, Cool Like That. You probably remember it. They were the digestible, friendly face of rap, the coffee shop alternative to scary gangsterism, which was the last thing that they wanted to be. Diggable planets weren't gangsters, but they didn't want to give you a hug and share a chai either. Blowout Comb was a refutation of that image. It's an attempt to create a feeling, a state of mind. It's rich and full, and it's very dark. It's also explicitly revolutionary. The group was rescuing itself from the outside world and hoping to take their people with them. They said it simply in their first single from the album, the manifesto, Dial 7, Axioms of Creamy Spies. 
This is the season of our self savior. The album draws in samples from all over the musical spectrum, but they're all in the service of a unified tone. It's urban and muggy and aesthetically almost perfectly coherent. None of the MCs were engaged in the skills-centric hip-hop culture of the time. No one's ripping the mic, dropping a crazy verse, dominating the competition. Instead, every one of the members of the group becomes an instrument in a dense ensemble of sound. Fly clothes, cash flow, and crazy L's to spark. It's called a plus, they jerk in my space, shout it cause they chase. When I strut out, sift through my block, I'm cook. Ooh, shift my mood to break, stole my mind back black. So what you play the board, skimmer, we got butter, so surface is out. Clever, and I fix it for you, funk time is moat time. Slack is at the back, black is fit my pack, and we fall whatever. We get down in this pleasure heavy, and we are measured by the 10 degrees of math. In a puzzle and locked, clocked in struggle. Can't keep it three foot, three above neck. And in so depth, I defect with my Vanguard squad, the gods in Brooklyn. Blowout Comb wasn't aggro and super lyrical enough for the uh, people who came to love the similarly dusty sound of the Wu-Tang Clan maybe a year later. It didn't have the non-threatening hits that brought the group the Grammy for their first record. In fact, it was more or less the end of Diggable Planet's career. Blowout Comb was a commercial failure, and they broke up within a year of the record coming out. When Diggable Planets tried to communicate their cloistered Gramscian aesthetic to the world, they ended up alienating the people that they were trying to change. But that doesn't make Blowout Comb any less spectacular. That's my outshot. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White is our editor. Our intern is Justin Morissette. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by the Go Team, thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, at 
Bullseye or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.